questions are not always innocent. Uh, sometimes people ask questions to conceal their hostility and even to attack their enemies. And we see a good example of this in the summer of 2017 when Russell Vogt was nominated to a position in the U.S. government. In his confirmation hearing, a prominent senator raised concerns about Mr. Vogt by asking him a series of questions regarding an article that he had written about how Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Listen to some of the questions that this senator asked. You wrote in your article, Muslims do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. Do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Do you believe people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? What about Jews? Do they stand condemned too? In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Do you think the statement in your article is respectful of other religions? As the senator finished his questions, he concluded by saying, I would simply say that this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. Now, this isn't the first time someone's used questions to paint Christians in a negative light. Christians have often faced this kind of opposition from the world, and we even see that in the life of Jesus. If you haven't done so already, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 22, and we're going to see this kind of opposition taking place in Jesus' ministry. We're going to see how Jesus' opponents again gather together to bring him down. They want to bring Jesus down. They've tried to do it in a direct confrontation before, and their efforts failed. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy, and Jesus even pronounced judgment on them. But now these opponents have regrouped, and they've rethought their strategy against Jesus. And so this time, they're going to try and bring him down again, but not through direct confrontation. This time, they're simply going to ask some questions. And it's their hope that their questions will so confuse and confound and outsmart Jesus that he will appear ridiculous, that the people will view him differently, that Jesus will discredit his ministry, and maybe he'll even get himself in trouble with the authorities. What these opponents didn't realize is that you can't outsmart Jesus. You can't trip him up or confuse him. You can't trick him or pressure him into answering a question in a way that makes him look foolish. Jesus has an answer for every question we could ever ask. And in fact, that's the, the big idea that I want you to take away from this morning. There is no problem, no issue, and no question too difficult for Jesus because he is the infinitely wise king. He's infinitely wise, and that is good news for us because we face problems and we face questions and issues in our lives all the time. And we, in ourselves, do not have the wisdom to know what we should say or what we should do. But Jesus leads us in his wisdom. And he guides us in our lives to live for his glory. But there's another reason this is good news for us. If Jesus is not infinitely wise, 
if sinful humans can confound and confuse Jesus, then he cannot rescue us from our sins. An unwise God is no God at all. But Jesus is infinitely wise, and he is able to be our Savior. And we're going to see his wisdom on display in this passage this morning as he interacts with his opponents. We're going to see four encounters. We're going to see how the worldly asks Jesus about money, the skeptics ask Jesus about heaven, the religious ask Jesus about commandments, and finally we'll look at how Jesus asks us about his identity. And as we observe these encounters between Jesus and his enemies, we're going to see his wisdom on display, and we're going to receive wisdom from him as to how we live as kingdom citizens. So let's begin this morning by looking at how the worldly asks Jesus about money. Look with me at Matthew 22, starting again in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true. You teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus answered, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. There's an old proverb that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what you see taking place in this section of Matthew. As the Pharisees continue to oppose Jesus, they join forces with an unlikely ally, this group called the Herodians. It's a very strange alliance because these two groups were really very different. The Pharisees, they're a religious group. They were very strict in obeying the Mosaic law, and they were anti-Rome. So if you remember, at this time, Israel's not an independent nation. They are subject to the Roman Empire, and this is a rule that the Pharisees and many other Israelites resented. The Herodians were different. They were more of a political group. They were closely associated with King Herod. If you remember, he had been appointed by Rome to be a subordinate ruler in Israel, so the Herodians are pro-Rome. So the Pharisees, the Herodians, they're not friends. They're like oil and water. They're, they don't mix together. But they come together now to get rid of Jesus. They both felt threatened by Jesus, and they want to remove him from the public scene. So they go to trap Jesus in his words, and the way they begin their plot, is to flatter Jesus. You see all the good things they say about him. They call him teacher. This is a very respected position. This would have been a very polite thing for them to say. They acknowledge that he is truthful, that he teaches the way of God in truth. 
They say that he's not controlled by the fear of man. These are all respectful things to say about Jesus, and they're even true. It's right to affirm these things about Jesus, and yet the people who said them did not mean what they said. Their words were hollow shells. They honored Jesus with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And this is very instructive for us today, friends, because this still happens, doesn't it? If you go home today, you could watch popular Christian TV, and you could listen to popular pastors and teachers on television, or you could go to Barnes & Noble, you could go to the religious section, and you could see books by very popular pastors, best-selling books. And they will all say good things about Jesus. They will even say true things about Jesus. And yet, sadly, many of these pastors and teachers and authors do not know Jesus. What people say is important. It matters that people say good and true things about Jesus, but true faith is measured by more than just your words. Not all that glitters is gold. And not everyone who says good and true things about Jesus is a Christian, so we must use wisdom to evaluate not just some words, but the the essence of someone's life and message. To see their character It's very possible to say good and true things about Jesus and not love him. That's what the Herodians are doing here. They're saying these nice things about Jesus. They think that by doing this, they're going to put Jesus off his guard. They're flavoring their words with flattery, and they hope that it's going to make their plot more effective. And then they spring the question that they hope is going to confuse them. Here's their question. Is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Now, there's two things we should note about this question. The first is that it is a legitimate question. The Israelites, they're God's chosen people. They were redeemed by God himself to serve him, and they were called to live their lives in a way that honored God before the world. And Rome is not a godly nation. Rome possesses a completely different worldview, a completely different set of moral beliefs. Most Israelites hated being under Roman rule because they felt like if we submit to Rome, that's betraying our allegiance to God. But one of the things Rome imposed on Israel was tax, money that was used to support their godless government. And so it's a valid question. Should God's people be willing to support a godless government by paying them taxes? Or you could ask it, does paying taxes to a godless nation betray your allegiance to God? Maybe that's something you've wrestled with. It's a valid question. But the second thing we need to note before we see Jesus' answer is the apparent predicament that this puts Jesus in. If Jesus just gives a simple yes answer, yes, yes, you should pay your taxes. Pay your taxes to Rome. 
then all the religious Israelites are going to question Jesus' devotion to God. They're going to peg him as a traitor and leave him. But if Jesus just gives a simple no answer, no, no, don't pay your taxes, don't give that to Caesar, don't give that to Rome, then the Herodians can run off to their superiors and say, Jesus is opposing paying taxes, he's causing the people to go into insurrection. They can get accuse him, and he may be arrested, maybe even killed. Jesus, it seems, is between a rock and a hard place. He's in a lose-lose situation with no easy answer, but there is no problem, issue, or question too difficult for Jesus. Jesus asks for a coin in order to give his answer. He says, show me a coin used for the tax, which is a denarius. You can see a picture of this on the screen. This is what the coin looked like. On one side, there was an image of Caesar's head, and there was an abbreviated inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, there's a picture of Caesar, dressed in robes, seated on a throne, with the words, high priest, engraved on it. So you could see how this coin would have been offensive to a religious Jew. But Jesus makes an important point. He says the coin has Caesar's likeness, his picture, his image on it. It's his coin. So give it to Caesar. His coin, if he wants it back, give it to him. Pay the tax. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says... And render to God the things that are God's. So here's Jesus' logic in what he's saying. The coin has Caesar's image, so give it to Caesar. And you need to give to God the things that have God's image on it. And what has God's image on it? Us. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you see the wisdom of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, yes, pay your taxes. Submit to your government, but not with ultimate allegiance. Your ultimate allegiance goes to the one who has placed his image on you. He deserves all of you. Jesus' wisdom is such a gift to us because he helps us to see it is not sinful to pay our taxes. Even those taxes that are used in ways we don't desire. Submitting to the authorities in this is not a betrayal of our Christian principles. In fact, to not submit to the government in this would be sinful and would directly disobey Jesus' words. But Jesus reminds us that even as we submit and even as we give our taxes to the governing authorities, they do not own our souls. Someone else has placed his image on us, God. And as such, we are called to offer ourselves completely and totally to him. He deserves our ultimate allegiance, not the government, and this should cause us to ask a question, to look in our lives and say, are there pockets in my life 
that I have not surrendered completely to the Lord? Am I holding back in some area? Friends, we have God's image on us. We belong to him, and we are called to give all of ourselves to him. Jesus' answer foils his opponent's plot. They can't, they can't accuse him. They can't say, well, Jesus said don't pay taxes. But they also can't say, well, he's betraying his allegiance to God. They, they're foiled. They're silenced. They leave amazed at his words. They can't accuse him. But as they walk away, another group approaches, and they have their own challenge for the Lord. So next we're going to see how the skeptics ask Jesus about heaven. So look with me back at the passage, and starting in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Almost every culture throughout the world has stories and beliefs about the afterlife. And even though these beliefs are very wrong, they still reflect that it's natural for humans to believe in life after death. However, today and even throughout history, there have been groups who have denied this belief that say this life is all there is. Once you die, it's done. Over. And that's what this next group believes, the ones who challenge Jesus, the Sadducees. These men did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. They believe once a person died, that was all. They ceased to exist. They did believe in God, and they believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the ones that Moses had written, but they didn't think that these books contained any proof of life after death. And so, as you can imagine, this belief caused the Sadducees to become a very materialistic group. If this life is all there is, then you should try and live your best life now. It's it was important to them not to live in complete submission to God, but to live a life of power and enjoyment and to do whatever you had to do in order to secure these desires. And that's part of why they hated Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching confronted their priorities. And Jesus' actions threatened their lifestyle. He was a threat to them, so he had to go. So they come to Jesus with this difficult question. They hope it's going to leave Jesus looking 
ridiculous, looking foolish. They tell Jesus of this woman who, in the course of her life, was married to seven brothers. She married the first brother, and he dies. And according to the law of Moses, the brother-in-law was supposed to marry her for her welfare and also so that the family name would continue on. And then the second brother dies, and then the third brother dies, and then the fourth brother dies down to the seventh. And finally, the woman dies as well. So the Sadducees pose this story, and then they ask Jesus, Jesus, in the resurrection, in heaven, who's she going to be married to? She's married to all seven. And they think that this question is going to confound Jesus. What is he going to say? Maybe stumble over his words, maybe ask for a minute to think about it. There doesn't seem to be any good answer to this question. Sadducees are hoping he'll be so confused that he'll be silenced and embarrassed, and everyone will see that he is just ridiculous. And yet, again, even though their purpose was sinister and this story is extreme, they also ask a valid question. We all know people who have been married multiple times, and it forces us to ask, how is that going to work in heaven? How is that going to work? Thankfully, there is no problem, issue, or question that is too difficult for Jesus. And without a moment's hesitation, Jesus gives his reply. Verse 29, he says, you are wrong. Isn't that just amazing? He, did, he doesn't even entertain their story. He doesn't try and think of some possible solution. He just says, you guys are wrong. You're not even asking the right question. And he says why they're wrong. Because they don't believe in two things. They don't understand two things. God's power and God's word. If they really understood God's power, they would know that God can and will raise people from the dead. He says that. But Jesus does acknowledge that this resurrection life, this life after death, will be different from how we experience it right now. He explains that there will be no marriage in heaven, which is why the Sadducees' question doesn't even matter. The woman's not going to be married to any of the brothers because there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus explains. Let me just pause here for a moment. You might be here this morning, and you are married, and you enjoy your marriage. So when you hear me say that there's not going to be marriage in heaven, it might scare you, or confuse you, or even disappoint you. And you may wonder, well, why would God take away such a good gift once we get to heaven? If that is how you feel, I want to encourage you with this reality. Marriage is a temporary gift that is meant to point us to a greater, more joyful, eternal reality. And that's Christ's fellowship with his people. So Ephesians 5, it teaches us that God created marriage. It reflects Jesus and the church. Marriage is not an end in itself. It's meant to point us to that. So marriage, it's like a shadow, and Jesus 
with this church is like the reality, the substance. Or marriage is like a, a sample that you taste, that whets your appetite. And Jesus and the church is like the full feast. Marriage is a temporary gift. It's meant to whet our appetites for the joyful, glorious, and lasting reality of Christ's relationship with his people. And your joy in heaven will not be diminished because there's no human marriage, because you will partake of the greater reality. You are united with Christ forever. So we know certain things are going to be different. Jesus tells us they will be different. But he also assures us that God has the power to raise the dead. And the Sadducees didn't know this power. But Jesus also says something else. He says they didn't understand the word of God, which reveals this truth. And to, to prove his point, Jesus quotes a passage from the book of Exodus. It was one of the books that the Sadducees would have said, yes, this is true. This is from God. So Jesus quotes from one of these books. He goes to scripture. And do you see what he says in verse 31? Look at verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? You know, friends, as we study the Bible, it is important that we understand the context. It's important to know the history and the original meaning for the original hearers. If we don't do those things, then we're, we're risking that we're going to misunderstand the Bible. But we also must never forget that the Bible is living and that the things that God said to Moses and Isaiah and Paul and John, he says them to us. He says them to you. We need to read scripture this way. This is what Jesus says. He says, God says this to you. And he quotes this passage where God tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And here's Jesus' point. When God said that to Moses, these men had been dead for hundreds of years. And so God's words wouldn't make sense if there was no life after death. God would have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But God didn't say that. He said, I am right now, currently, presently, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what Jesus is saying is God's relationship with his people continues after their death. As a Christian, God's relationship with you will continue after your death. He has promised to love us eternally, and not even death will change that. God will raise his people again and we will forever know and rejoice in his love with him. You know, just seeing how Jesus uses scripture, let me encourage you one more thing, friends, before moving on. I want to encourage you to know and to trust your Bible. Scripture is powerful and precise and every part of it matters, even the grammar. That's what Jesus was talking about, was the grammar. This text, it doesn't tell us how the Sadducees responded. 
but it does tell us that everyone who heard the crowds, they were amazed. They were astonished at Jesus' wisdom, at how he used scripture to prove God's power and the resurrection. And the Sadducees are silenced, and the Pharisees see this, and they decide, I want to give it one more go around. I want to try one more time. And so they come to Jesus, and this is where we see the religious ask Jesus about commandments. Look at verse 34, Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If I were to take a poll of everyone in this room and ask, what is the most important organ in the human body? I'd probably get a variety of answers. Some of you might say the brain. You need the brain in order for any of your other organs to function. Some of you might say the heart, because if your heart isn't pumping, it doesn't matter what your brain does. Some of you might say the lungs, because you say, if you don't have your lungs working, the heart isn't going to help you. You could give a variety of answers of what's the most important organ in your body. And you could give reasons for that, and you could argue with someone else and say why their answer is wrong. That's kind of what the Pharisees are doing here. They know that all of God's law is important, but like, which one's the greatest? And they're waiting for Jesus to give an answer so that they can nitpick. So they can say, ah, Jesus, you said this, but what about this command over here? They're looking for holes that they can poke in Jesus' answer because they also, they're again seeking to trap Jesus. They've, the Pharisees were in these frequent debates. The different schools would often ask which was the greatest commandment. And so they're asking Jesus, hoping that he'll give an answer that they can poke holes at and show, you're wrong, Jesus. You forgot about this. You forgot about this. But as we've already seen, there's no problem, issue, or question too difficult for the infinitely wise king, Jesus. And Jesus answers this lawyer's question, again, by going to Scripture. He depended on Scripture. And he says, the first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, there's a few things that we should see about Jesus' answer. And the first is the nature of these commands. And it's love. And specifically talking about the, the first command, to love God, John Calvin, he observes that Jesus could have said the greatest commandment is to obey God. He could have said the greatest commandment is to serve God or to fear God. But Jesus didn't say that. He says the greatest commandment is to love God. Why? Well, John Calvin says it's because love and affection for God will lead you to these other expressions of obedience. And it is only when you love God that these expressions of obedience please God. Because they demonstrate 
his work and his glory. If you obey God without loving him, that does not honor him. So the greatest commandment is to love God. That's the nature of what Jesus is talking about, is love. But the object is also important. And that's what Jesus says. The object of your love is first God and then your neighbor. These two commands, they're distinct, they're different, but they are connected. They're linked together. You can't separate them. They're like a coin. There's two sides, they're different sides, but you can't have one without the other. If you truly love God, you will love others. First John, it tells us that God is love, and so if you love God, you will be like God, and you will love others. It's impossible for that not to happen in your heart if you truly love him. So in order to fully love God, you have to love your neighbor. But in order to, to love your neighbor rightly, you have to love God. Because if you don't know God, if you don't love God, you're not going to love others in the right way. It's going to be self-motivated. It won't endure when these other people hurt you. So in order to love others rightly, you have to love God. So these things, again, these two commands, they're linked. They go together. Loving God, it is the priority but it will lead to the second. And so this is the answer that Jesus gives to the lawyer, and he explains that the rest of the law, and even the rest of the Old Testament, rests on these two commands. Friends, if you want to understand the Old Testament, you have to remember these two commands. If you're reading in the Old Testament and you're confused or you don't understand something, one of the best things you can do is to think in your mind, how does this passage point me to one of these commands? Loving God or loving others? Because the whole Old Testament rests on these two commands. As we think about Jesus' words these commands, we should think about them on a personal level and respond in a couple of ways. And the first is to recognize the evidence of God's grace in our lives for producing love for him and for others. So in the past several weeks, our family has been here in Bacosan. We've been able to be a part of this church family been a, a joy for us, and we have seen the evidence of God's grace in producing love in you all for him and for others. One way that we see that is in your singing. I know not everyone likes to sing, and I know that not everyone is good at singing, and I know that there are some people who can sing on the outside and their hearts are unaffected on the inside. But we know from God's word that when God saves a sinner, their heart is moved with affection for him, and it responds to singing. I believe you can tell whether or not a church is captivated by God and his love by their singing. When a church loves God, the voices of the people sing out and they worship their God, and that is you. We have seen that. We have heard that. We have heard your worship and your love for God in your singing. 
Is he encouraged by that? That God has worked in you to have love for him? And also be encouraged because we've also seen your love for people. We have experienced that you have loved us well. We see your love for others, for guests when they come in. You go to them, you engage them, you seek to show them the love of God, and that is because of what God is doing in you. So be encouraged. There is evidence of God's grace that he is helping you follow Jesus' words and to love him and to love others well. There is a second way we should respond to these commands, though, and it's to recognize that even as God gives us grace to obey them, we fail. We cannot keep these commands perfectly. We can, by God's grace, point to evidence that God is working these things in our heart, and yet we know, we acknowledge that we don't always love God, and we don't always love others. Oftentimes, we are much more motivated, and our affections are much more set on sin, on possessions, focused on ourselves, and we don't walk in love. We need to acknowledge that we fail to obey these two commands because it points us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who keeps the law perfectly on our behalf. These two commands summarize the law, and he's the one who keeps it He's the one who loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. He's the one who perfectly loved his neighbor as himself every single moment of his life. And then he willingly gave that perfect record to his people. So that when we stand before God, God doesn't see our failure to love. He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' record on us. So that's how we respond to these commands. We see God's grace in our lives. We see our failure, and it points us to Christ. It reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus gives this answer. The Pharisees can't nitpick. They can't find a hole in what he said. Again, they're unable to trap him in his words. And it leads to the fourth encounter between Jesus and his opponents. But this time, it's not the enemies who ask the question. It's Jesus. Jesus asks the Pharisees a question, and it's a question for all of us. It's a question that we are all forced to come to and to answer. Jesus questions us about his identity. He asks us about his identity. Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, 
nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. In Jesus' day, there was great hope in a coming king, a Messiah, a Christ, who would deliver Israel from her enemies and lead the nation in righteousness, lead the people in the true worship of God. Many Old Testament passages pointed to this hope. And they linked this figure to David, King David in the Old Testament. This Messiah would be a son or a descendant of David and would reign like David. He would follow God and he would lead the people to obey God. So when Jesus asks the Pharisees this question, he says, whose son is the Christ? It's like he's throwing them a softball pitch. It's a really easy pitch. It was a simple question. Everyone knew the answer to it. The Christ, this Messiah, this coming king that we're waiting for, is the son of David. He's a descendant of David. He's going to come from David's family. This helps us understand a little bit of why the Pharisees were so angry at Jesus. Because you remember just a few days earlier on Palm Sunday, Jesus has come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And all the crowds and all the children are yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. What they're yelling out is, this is that king. This is that Messiah. This is the one who's coming from David's family who's going to reign like David. And what fueled the Pharisees' anger even more is that Jesus willingly accepted this praise. When they say, Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying about you? He says, yes, I do. And he receives that praise. He doesn't silence them. So Jesus indirectly has already made himself known as the Christ, the son of David. He knew this would infuriate the religious leaders, but he also knew that this didn't go far enough. He also knew that this was a, a partial reality. It was true, but it didn't cover the whole reality, which these Pharisees needed to understand. And that's because the people in this day who are waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this King, this Christ to come, they didn't associate this Messiah with God. They believed he would be sent by God. They believed he would lead the people in the way of God. They believed he would be used by God. But they didn't think the Messiah would be God himself. They thought he would simply be a great man like David. So Jesus, the one that the people are calling the son of David, presses deeper. He wants people to think through, who is this son of David that you say I am? He wants these leaders, he wants us to not be mistaken in any way who he is. That he's more than any man. And so he says, if this Messiah, if this Christ is really David's son, then why does David talk about him and call him and Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, which was read for us earlier in the service. And it's a psalm that talks about the Messiah, the promised king who would have, was to come. And these leaders would have known this passage. And in essence, what David does is he says, the coming Messiah, the Christ, 
the king is going to come from my family line, that Messiah is greater than me. He's my ruler. This doesn't make sense. In this day, older is always better. The fathers held the place of prominence over their children and grandchildren. It was unthinkable for a descendant to be the lord of one of their ancestors. The ancestors were always greater than those who came from them. But that's what David does. And this is what Jesus highlights. Jesus says, if the Christ is David's Lord, how is he his son? Or you, or you could ask it, if Christ, if the Christ is David's son, why does David call him Lord? He's, he's trying to draw attention to this to make them think. And the Pharisees don't have an answer. No one had an answer, and so people just realized, we need to stop asking Jesus questions. There's nothing we can do. Trap him. He's just too wise. And the reason Jesus is so wise is also the answer to his own question. So Pharisees couldn't give. Jesus didn't give it. But we know from Scripture what the answer to his question is. The reason why David called his coming son Lord is because his coming son would also be God. The reason David prophesied about this coming Christ and called him Lord is because this king was not man. He was God come in the flesh. That is who Jesus is. He is God. The reason David calls him Lord, the reason no enemy could trap him in a question is because he is God. And that is why Jesus is able to rescue us from our sin. Because of our rebellion against God, we deserve his wrath for all eternity. There's no way that we can pay the debt that we owe. Jesus enters the scene. And because he is God, he can pay the debt that we owe. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross where he endured our wrath and the punishment we deserve. Where he accomplished a great redemption for us because he is God. And because he's God, he's infinitely wise. Because he's infinitely wise, we can gain wisdom from him on all these issues that these enemies brought to him. We can learn about money and taxes and marriage and heaven and about commands and obedience. But Jesus recognizes what the most important question is that we need to address. Who is Jesus? That's the chief question. That's the question he asks. That's the question we need to answer. C.S. Lewis, Christian author in the last century, helps people think through this question with the following statement. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone 
from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, it's no problem issue or question too difficult for Jesus. He's infinitely wise, which shows us that he's God. And because he's God, he's given us a great redemption. Our response should be to fall at the feet of our infinitely wise king call him Lord and God. May we pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your son Jesus that points that he is equal with you. He is God. Thank you that we can receive wisdom from him as we walk through life to know how to live in a way that pleases you, and also we can see how because he is infinitely wise, he is God, that we have salvation because of who he is and what he's done for us. May we see the glory of Jesus. May we see his wisdom. May we worship at his feet, calling him Lord and God. If there are those here who do not know this, believe this, who do not love him, would you please cause them to fall on their faces before Christ and call him Lord and God. Thank you for our Savior.